Well, please turn me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Acts 2, 1 through 4. Please remember, Acts is volume 2 of Luke's writing to a man named Theophilus. Volume 1 was the Gospel of Luke. Volume 2 is this, the book of Acts. Volume 1 focused on everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. And Acts continues to tell us of Christ's teachings and actions through His people who are empowered by His Spirit. So far, we've been reminded of what took place in the first volume, the Gospel of Luke. We also learned about what was going to happen shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven, where the promised Holy Spirit is going to come and live inside of His people, helping and empowering them to properly glorify God and arrive safely home. So even though Jesus is leaving, God isn't going to leave us as orphans. No, He's going to come and He's going to reside in us which is exactly what we need in this cosmic battle that we are in. In chapter 1, we saw Jesus ascend into heaven, an amazing event where He's now at the right hand of God in the place of power, advocating and interceding for us as people. And then we saw what the disciples were doing over the next 10 days between His ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. What was that? What were they doing? They were praying, remember? And they were praising God together. Very good. At the end of chapter 1, we saw the faithful believers replacing Judas with Matthias as an apostle. So now there are 12 again, and now they wait. What are they waiting for? For the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's where we pick up here in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's go ahead and look at that. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to be uh, to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now the first thing we observe in verse 1 is that the day of Pentecost has now arrived. The word Pentecost in the Greek means 50th, and so the Feast of Pentecost comes 50 days after the day of Passover. See, Pentecost, otherwise known as the Feast of Harvest, or the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, I think that's how you pronounce it, in the Hebrew, is an Old Testament feast that celebrated the end of the harvest. Described in Leviticus 23, this feast is the second of three solemn feasts. Each of these solemn feasts, Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, required that all able-bodied Jewish males travel to Jerusalem to attend the feast and to offer sacrifices to the Lord as a way of expressing thanksgiving for God's provision. The Feast of first fruits celebrated at the time of Passover included the first fruits of the barley harvest. The Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, was in celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest, And then the Feast of Tabernacles involved offerings of the first fruits of the olive and the grape harvests. Now, while there were three feasts where the males were required to travel to Jerusalem where the temple was located, there were actually seven Jewish feasts that they celebrated, and all of those feasts pointed to Jesus Christ. See, the seven annual feasts of Israel were spread out over seven months of the Jewish calendar at set times appointed by God. The first uh, four of the seven feasts occur during the springtime, and they all have already been fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. 
The final three occur during the fall, all within a short 15-day period. And most Bible scholars believe that these fall feasts haven't yet been fulfilled by Christ, but they certainly will be fulfilled by Christ. So in a nutshell, here's the prophetic significance of each of the seven feasts of Israel. Number one, Passover, Peshach, pointed to the Messiah as our Passover lamb, whose blood would be shed for our sin. Jesus was crucified during this time of Passover, and it wasn't by accident. See, Christ is indeed a lamb without blemish or defect because his life was completely free from sin. And as the first Passover marked the Hebrews' release from Egyptian slavery, so the death of Christ marks our release as believers from the slavery of sin and hell. Two, the Feast of Unleavened Bread pointed to the Messiah's sinless life, making him the perfect sacrifice for our sin. As one notes, Jesus' body was in the grave during the first days of this feast, like a kernel of wheat planted and waiting to burst forth as the bread of life. Three, the Feast of first fruits pointed to the Messiah's resurrection as the first fruits of the righteous. Jesus was resurrected on this very day, which is one of the reasons that Paul refers to him in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 as the first fruits from the dead. Four, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest or Pentecost or Shavuot in the Hebrew occurred 50 days after the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and appointed to the great harvest of souls and the gift of the Holy Spirit for both Jew and Gentile who would be brought into the kingdom of God during the church age. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in every true believer is what seals us in Christ and bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed joint heirs with Jesus. Now, after the spring feasts concluded with the Feast of Weeks, there's a period of time before the fall feasts begin. This time is spiritually symbolic of the church age in which we live today. See, Christ's sacrifice and resurrection are past. We have received the promise of the Holy Spirit And now we're awaiting His second coming. But look, just as the spring feasts pointed to the Messiah's ministry at His first coming, the fall feasts point toward what will happen at His second coming. So five, the Feast of Trumpets was the first of the fall feasts. The Feast of Trumpets was commanded to be held on the first day of the seventh month and was to be a day of trumpet blast to commemorate the end of the agricultural and festival year. The Feast of Trumpets points to Christ's second coming. Christ's return is always associated in Scripture with the blowing of a loud trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Six is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement occurs just ten days after the Feast of Trumpets. If you remember from the book of Hebrews, the Day of Atonement was a day that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies each year to make an offering for the sins of Israel. This feast is symbolic of the time when God will again turn His attention back to the nation of Israel, where the faithful Jewish remnant will look upon Him whom they have pierced, repent of their sin, and receive Him as their Messiah as true believers in Christ. Seven, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. As one of the three pilgrimage feasts, this feast is the seventh and final feast of the Lord and took place five days after the Day of Atonement. For seven days, the Israelites presented offerings to the Lord during which time they lived in huts made from palm branches. 
living in the booths recall the time that the Israelites prior, uh, the time of the Israelites prior to their taking the land of Canaan. This feast signifies a future time when Christ rules and reigns on the earth, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will tabernacle with Christ in the new Jerusalem. And please note again, all these feasts pointed to Christ, who is the fulfillment, not only of all the feasts, but the fulfillment of everything that's found in the Old Testament. Now question, should we celebrate these feasts today? What do you think? Everybody's scared to answer. Well, why would you focus on the shadow when you have the reality? The feast prepared people for Christ. And now that we have Christ, come on, our focus should be on Christ who is our all in all. It's kind of like reading about Yosemite instead of actually going to Yosemite. Actually, it's even worse than that. It's like living in Yosemite and never going outside your house to experience Yosemite, but instead choosing just to read about Yosemite. Wow, Half Dome is really pretty. Look at this picture. Um, well, how about just going outside and looking at it? The real thing is even better than the picture. Come outside and look. No, I, I just prefer the picture. What? That doesn't make a lot of sense, right? We don't need to celebrate the feast. We have Jesus. Worship Jesus, the real thing, are all in all. See. So now Pentecost has arrived. The feast of the harvest makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, a great harvest is going to be added to the church and the power of the Holy Spirit on this day. So, what happened on this day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus died and 10 days after he ascended? This, the promise of the Father is becoming a reality now. Look, they're all gathered together in one accord. They're probably in that same large upper room praying, united, waiting, and that's when the Holy Spirit of God arrived. Now question, who's the Holy Spirit? Well, the word holy is a giveaway, for only God is truly holy in and of himself. And so the Holy Spirit is God, namely God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Our doctrinal statement says, We believe, teach that there is but one living and true God, an infinite, all-knowing Spirit, perfect in all His attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally deserving worship and obedience. Why do we have that in our doctrinal statement? Because it's biblical. So we worship, according to the Bible, one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons. Now, there's an old teaching that says God is the Father in the Old Testament, but then He changed His mask and He became the Son in the New Testament, and then later on He changed His mask again and He became the Holy Spirit since that time. That's called heresy. The Bible is clear that from all eternity, God has been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons. And while that's a hard thing for us to grasp, how can one be three? It's hard to grasp. It's clearly biblical. Look, in the Bible it's clear that the Father is God. John 17, 3, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Ephesians 1, 3, 1 Peter 1, 3, on and on and on and on it goes. The Father is God. That isn't a problem for most of us. The Bible's also clear that Jesus is God. That's a problem for some, but it's a biblical truth. In Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus is called the mighty God. John 1, 1, the word Jesus was and is God. In John 20, 28, Thomas called Jesus his Lord 
and his God. Acts 20, 28 mentions the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, talking about Jesus. Titus 2, 13 tells us that Jesus is our great God and Savior. Hebrews 1, 8 says that the Son is God. 2 Peter 1, 1 says that Jesus is our God and Savior. In 1 John 5, 20, Jesus is called the true God. I can go on and on. But the Bible is very clear that Jesus is God, specifically God the Son. And then we also find that the Bible is clear that the Holy Spirit is God. Hebrews 9.14 tells us that the Holy Spirit is eternal, a divine attribute. Psalm 139.7-10 tells us that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, another divine attribute. Luke 1.35 shows us that the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, another divine attribute. 1 Corinthians 2.10 tells us that the Holy Spirit is omniscient, yet another divine attribute. Psalm 104.30 ascribes creation to the Holy Spirit because He's God, the Creator. In 1 Corinthians 12.4-6 it says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works in all of them and all men. And so... Spirit, Lord, and God are used synonymously because they can be one God in three distinct persons. In Matthew 20, 28, 19 through 20, it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the... Anybody know? In the name of God. Who, who's God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, talking about God. In 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, it says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Once again, these three are used synonymously because they're the same. They are three in one. Jesus, the Father, the Spirit. We can go on and on. But the Bible is very clear. The Spirit is God. And this is important for us to understand. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a he. He's a person. He's God. And we should love Him Because he's doing a great work even now for us on our behalf. James Boyce said, if we think of the Holy Spirit as a mysterious power, our thought will continually be, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? If we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, our thought will be, how can the Holy Spirit have more of me? The first thought is entirely pagan. The second is New Testament Christianity. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit has an understanding. He has a mind. He has a will, he has emotion, and he can be grieved. He creates and he gives life. He's credited with acts and with deeds. He strives with sinners. He reproves and comforts. He helps, he teaches, he guides. He can be tested. He regenerates souls and so on. The point again, the Holy Spirit is God. He's a distinct person who is worthy of our worship, who is worthy of our praise. One God in three persons. So, What's the promise? The promise is this. You remember that these believers will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What's that? Simply put, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the one-time event that happens at conversion where the Spirit places you into union with Christ and with other believers and where He then resides inside of you until you arrive safely home into glory. You say, John, okay, that sounds good, but, but these guys here in Acts 2 were already saved. That's a good point. But please remember that Acts is a very unique book because Acts is a historical narrative of a time of great spiritual transition and not everything, please understand this, not everything that happened in Acts is normative for the church today. I mean, 
It's not normative, it's not normal for people to be saved today without being baptized, without being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen today like that. And so, as we look at Acts, a distinction needs to be made between what is descriptive in Acts and what is prescriptive. Between what happened and between what's normative now for us today. So, while the baptism of the Holy Spirit is indeed the experience of every saved person today, for every Christian has been baptized with the Holy Spirit, the way it happened initially to the apostles isn't the same way that it happens today anymore. Even though every Christian has indeed been baptized by the Holy Spirit when they were saved. Look, biblically, normatively, the moment we are saved, that's when the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. He saves us. He indwells us. Done. That means that when someone asks, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? If you're a Christian, the answer is always yes. And if you answer no, you're really saying that you're not saved. Because normatively, the Holy Spirit does four things for you the moment you come to Christ and you're saved. Number one, you're born again by the Spirit of God, John 3, 5. Number two, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Number three, you are baptized by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And then four, you are sealed by the Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13. These four things happen when you trust Christ and they are never repeated. They're all performed by the Holy Spirit in the life of the child of God. And they aren't related to any extraordinary emotional experiences whatsoever. Not normatively. Another question as a Christian, should I seek to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Answer, no. Because if you're a Christian, you were already baptized with the Holy Spirit the moment you were saved. So you don't need to seek what you already have. If you're a genuine Christian, you don't, you need Jesus. If you're a genuine, if you aren't, well, if you are a genuine Christian, you still need Jesus. But if you're not a genuine Christian, you need Jesus. You need to surrender to Him in repentant faith to be saved from all your sin. And look, when you find Jesus, or when He finds you, you'll get the baptism of the Holy Spirit at no extra charge. See, the baptism of the Spirit is part of what it means to come to Christ in the first place. So, What's normative for us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is this. For in one spirit we were all, anybody? Baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So all Christians are baptized, they're immersed, they're indwelt by the spirit the moment they get saved. Another question, why were the early disciples, why were the early disciples told to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Answer, because that baptism hadn't happened yet. It happened for the first time right here on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so they had to wait for Pentecost in order to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But look, ever since then, no Christian has ever had to wait for it. So again, the baptism of the Spirit is for all Christians, but the way it happened in Acts 2 was unique during this time of transition for the church. This is a big deal. Because it wasn't this way in the Old Testament. I mean, the Spirit didn't indwell people like this in the Old Testament like He would in Acts 2 and beyond. Again, this is a huge deal. Now, this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't working in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that at all. He was involved in creating the world. He came upon certain prophets, kings, and other leaders in order to speak through them in what would later become the Old Testament Scriptures. He also raised up national leaders during the dismal period of the judges. During that time, he gave strength, courage, 
capability in war and leadership abilities to several people. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit was actively involved in both saving and sanctifying true believers in the Old Testament. But note this, it was different. It wasn't the same as the baptism and the indwelling that's promised here. This is a huge distinction, see. This was something definitely worth waiting for, and it changed everything for these believers. God, God the Spirit, God Himself is going to live inside of you. It's a massive deal. What happened was very dramatic, wasn't it? Look, verse 2. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Yeah, yeah I think that's dramatic. Anybody? That's very dramatic. The sound of the violent rushing wind was primarily a picture of invisible power. You can't see the wind, but you can see and, and, and hear how powerful it is in the tornado or in the hurricane. In this case, the disciples heard the noise, but there's no indication that they felt it blowing. Note that it came from heaven, and note that the noise was mighty, it was loud, it was violent, as some translations call it. Interesting that both the Hebrew and Greek words for wind and spirit are the same. In Ezekiel 37, God commanded the prophets to prophesy to the winds and to speak to the valley of dry bones. When he did so, the breath of life came into them. God then explained that he will put his spirit within his people and that they too will come to life. In John 3, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about the need to be born of the spirit. He explained the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, like the wind, is a mighty power. But we can't see Him. We can only see His effects. And one of His most powerful effects is when He imparts spiritual life to those of us who were dead in our sin. And so it was clear that that God is now up to something big. That the old was giving way to the new. And the wind represented the presence of God, the Spirit, and also the power of God, the Spirit. Guess what? He has now arrived. So there's a sound, but there was also a sight. Look at verse 3. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And this just gets more and more dramatic, doesn't it? I mean, fire. Fire. So they heard the Spirit's arrival in Acts 2, and now they see the Spirit's arrival. Divided tongues as of fire that rested on each of them. you imagine seeing that? you imagine being there? Imagine hearing that? Hearing this loud, violent wind. It's so violent that the people around, people in Jerusalem, they came to see what was going on. We'll look at that next week. But this is v- extremely dramatic, extremely loud. Hearing this violent wind and now seeing this most amazing sight. What does what divided tongues as of fire look like? It's hard for me to picture It seems that they saw what looked like tongues on fire that were separating and going out to rest on each of the 120 people in the room. It might have been that there was one great flame that came and then divided and separated into individual flames, which resulted in each person having a flame on him. It wasn't real fire. But it looked like fire, divided tongues as of fire, and it was all a picture of the Spirit's presence. Now, why appear like tongues? Perhaps to show 
that the Spirit would manifest Himself in their speech so they could go on and become bold witnesses for Christ, which indeed did happen. Why would God use what looked like fire? Well, fire is frequently used in the Old Testament as a symbol of God's presence. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces, Genesis 15, 17. You have the burning bush that didn't burn, Exodus 3, 2 through 5. You have Exodus 13, 21. The Lord was going to go before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And then Exodus 24, 17. The glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Then Exodus 40, 38. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. See, it signified the presence of the Lord back then as it does here in Acts 2. Again, the Holy Spirit has now arrived. And look, He's not just in one place like He was over the tabernacle in the Old Testament, but the fact that the tongues were divided shows that it was now to be a factor for every believer to know and experience personally the Holy Spirit of God. For now, every believer will be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? Fire. Fire's a great symbol. Fire gives light, but fire also inflames. Spurgeon said, the flames which sat upon each showed them that they were to be ablaze with love, intense with zeal, and burning with self-sacrifice. And that's possible now because God the Spirit is now living in them. These flames also showed them that they, were to, that they were to go forth and speak the truth of God with burning tongues, passionately pleading, persuading, and entreating men to come to Christ that they might be saved. The Holy Spirit's going to help them here, obviously. And now that they have Him, how could they not be set on fire for Him? I mean, how, how, how could we not? God lives in us. How could we not be set on fire for God? We we have God in us. Come on. Dead faith shouldn't be uttered around here. Mediocrity and lukewarmness shouldn't be mentioned here because God lives here. God is in us. How could we not be set on fire for Him to be glorified in us, amongst us, in this place? Fire, not ice. Fire, not dry, dead, winter, ice-cold religion without passion. Fire. God lives in us. God is here. Gets even more dramatic. Because look, everyone spoke with other tongues. Verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. See, the Spirit wants it to be clear. Again, He has now arrived. There's no denying it. Now please remember something here. This is all indicating the fact that the promise of God is now being fulfilled. The Spirit has come to baptize His people. That was a promise, right? He will baptize them. He will immerse them. He will fill them. He will come and live inside of them. And again, this isn't normally how this happens today, but that's how it happened this first time to make it clear that the Spirit had come and will now reside in His people as their helper. Now remember, the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit are different things. The baptism of the Spirit happens only once, normatively at conversion, or here for these, here in Acts 2. But, but look, we are continually called 
to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled by the Spirit is a command for us, and it's something that's to occur continually in our lives, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, moment by moment. And while we have Him fully in our lives as Christians, He lives in us, we can now fan Him into flame more and more, or else we can quench Him and we can grieve Him by sin. And so normatively, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the time of our salvation, but we are filled with Him more and more and more when we submit to Him in love and we, we push Him down when we sin and rebel against Him. The saying goes like this, one baptism, many fillings. That's right, daily filling to the brim, continual filling of Him. That's the goal. The disciples on the day of Pentecost were not only baptized in the Spirit, but they were also filled with the Spirit, verse 4. It's a great day for them. See, to be filled with the Spirit, we must empty ourselves by confessing all known sin and dying to self. And you can do that right now. We must yield ourselves fully to the Lord and depend on Him step by step, walking in Him, Galatians 5.16. Interestingly, being filled with the Spirit is also called in a parallel passage, letting the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. Therefore, the filling of the Spirit can't be divorced from God's Word being at home in your heart. The results of a consistent daily walk in the Spirit will be the fruit of the Spirit manifested in our lives and manifested in our relationships. See, the Holy Spirit of God, He's very practical. He wants you to be godly. He wants you to exalt Christ in your life. He wants you to obey. He's not really concerned about high emotion. He's concerned about you lovingly obeying God in your life. See, that's his concern. So, they have the sound. They have the tongues as of fire. And now they're all speaking with other tongues. Now, clearly this isn't Babel. We'll see that next week more clearly. But this isn't Babel. But this is languages being spoken by those who didn't know how to speak them. A divine miracle that would allow the early church to get the truth out to people from every corner of the world. Think about that. How would this group of 120, the church, get the word out, the good news that saves, out to people? Especially when they only spoke one or two or three languages. Here's how. God would give these early Christians an amazing gift that would allow them to get the word out. Tongues, languages. They'd be able to speak the truth to people in their own language, even though the one speaking it didn't know the language. And here, the Spirit was making it clear, not only that He had come and indwelled His people, but that He would gift them for what they needed at this time to get the truth out to the lost world around them. This begs the question, is the gift of tongues given to the church today? Is this... uh, meant to be the indispensable sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Good answer. Some argue that it is. They say that the sign of being baptized with the Spirit is speaking in tongues, and that if you have not done that, you're lacking in some kind of vital spiritual experience. But that's not true. And if they say that, think about this, if they say that, then shouldn't they also include the sound of the violent wind? along with the divided tongues of fire that sat on each person? No, the main evidence of being baptized and filled with the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, and on. That's the real proof that God the Spirit is living inside of us. Remember, the genuine gift of tongues is the ability to speak a foreign language that you haven't studied rather than some kind of ecstatic utterance. 
Also, tongues was one of those signs or marks of the apostles, and they were closely tied with the apostles. What do I mean? Well, in Hebrews 2, 4, it mentions signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. There, the writer of Hebrews is referring to the miracles performed by the apostles and some of their close associates, as recorded in the book of Acts, which we'll see much more of. The term signs, wonders, and miracles are are basically synonymous. And here, the writer isn't referring to all the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives, but to the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit that were given to the apostles and to the early church, namely tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, and miracles. And what we find is that those gifts were given for a specific time, for a specific reason, as the Word of God was being completed and as the foundation of the church was being laid. Note that these signs, wonders, and miracles done by the apostles weren't just flashy events to catch people's attention, and they weren't teasers to try to get people to listen to what the gospel writers were going to say. No. Instead, they were things given by God to prove that what these men were saying was absolutely true and from God Almighty, undoubtedly and extremely clearly, because it's miraculous. For example, when Christ performed a miracle, the function of the miracle was not to simply dazzle or impress the crowd, but instead those miracles were there to confirm that what he said was indeed the very truth of God. It was the same way with the apostles. Those incredible, undeniable miracles were delegated by Christ to the apostles, and they were designated to attest that what the apostles were saying was true before the word of God was completed, and before the foundation of the church was fully laid down. So, we believe that the sign gifts pertain to the apostolic era only, and that they served a purpose that was unique to establishing the early church, and that they therefore passed away once the scriptures were completed. Now, why do we believe this? A few reasons. One, we believe the sign gifts have ceased because they're not around anymore. What we see today is not what was going on in the book of Acts. What you see on TV today is not what was going on in the book of Acts. In the New Testament, people with the gift of healing healed everyone. They drove illness out of the cities that they were in. That's not what we see going on today. Instead, if you're sick today, you're supposed to ask for others to pray for you, and God may heal you through prayer if that's His will to do so. That's worlds apart from what we see in Acts. The same is true for the other sign gifts. The tongues we see going on today was not what was going on in Acts. Again, the tongues recorded in the book of Acts were languages unknown to the person speaking them. As the gift was displayed, the truth of God would go out to the hearers in their own language. We're going to see that next week. So they could hear the good news of Christ and be saved. Babel is not biblical tongues. Biblical tongues was a miracle that couldn't be denied, explained away, faked, or caused by emotion. Also, you didn't have to learn how to speak in tongues in the book of Acts. It was a divine miracle given by the Lord. Biblical tongues and the tongues we primarily see today are not the same thing. The same is true for the apostles. There are no more apostles today. One of the prerequisites for a true apostle was that they had seen the risen Lord. So clearly, there are no more apostles today. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12.12 that the signs of a true apostle are signs, wonders, and miracles. That's exactly what the apostles were to demonstrate to show that they truly were from God. 
There are no more apostles today like the twelve and Paul. They were indeed a gift to the early church for a specific purpose, for a specific time in history. Therefore, just as the apostles died off, so too has the unique gifting of the apostles died off. It doesn't mean that God doesn't do miracles today. God does. And, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't work primarily through His people and their prayers. God does. If you want a miracle, pray. Pray. I've seen God do many miracles through prayer. We pray, but I don't have that gift. Like the apostles had that gift. We pray. It means that normatively, God works differently than He did when the apostles walked the earth and laid the foundation of the church. So question, why did God give the signed gifts to the church in Acts? Because it was a world without the New Testament. The function of the signed gifts was to fulfill this purpose until the New Testament was completed. These gifts authenticated the apostles and demonstrated to the world that these were the ones Jesus left in charge of His church until the New Testament arrived. So, there was indeed a gift of tongues, languages in the early church. But look, what we see in Acts 2 is unique even from that in the sense that here, the Spirit did this to everyone, all 120 of them, to show that He has indeed come, a very unique experience, and also to spread the word to all the other foreigners who were in the city that day so they could hear the truth of Christ. We'll see that next week. This is not normative for the church today. This is extremely unique. And as time went on and the apostles died off and the word was being completed, these sign gifts faded away. Note how in the verse in Hebrews 2, the writer tells them how the word of the Lord was confirmed by the apostles through various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. If these gifts were present in the church at the time he was writing, he wouldn't have needed to refer to them as things of the past. Instead, their purpose has been to confirm the apostolic message. And after that purpose was fulfilled, those things passed off the scene. Also, note that the meaning of Pentecost wasn't to encourage believers to have an ecstatic experience for their own edification the sound, the sight, the miracle of this foreign languages. No, the meaning of Pentecost was that God gave the Holy Spirit to His church so that they would bear witness to the nations for His glory. And He's making it clear of that here to these 120. Very clear. God now lives in you. Now, go out and shine. Be a bright light. Bear witness. Set the world on fire. Speak of the things of God, for nothing is impossible with God. One said, Bethlehem was God with us. Calvary was God for us. Pentecost was God in us. Now think of that. God the Spirit will now indwell all His people. That fact changes everything. God lives in you. If you're a Christian, God lives in you. So don't you limit what he can do through you. Don't, don't limit what God can do through us. No, be faithful and trust him and step out. D.L. Moody said, you might as well try to see without eyes, hear without ears, or breathe without lungs as to try to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. He's right. But good news, we have his spirit. He indwells us and our call is to trust him, to walk in him, to be men and women of the word, to be faithful to him as he works mighty things through us. No, uh, John, God could never use me. I could never make an impact. My life is almost over, and so is my usefulness for God. Stop it. He lives in you. 
So stop telling him what he can or can't do through you. You just be faithful. You trust him. You draw near. You pray much. Stay in the word. Seek to redeem the time. That ought to keep us busy for a while. Who knows what God will do through you? Who knows what God can do through us together? I want God to work through us to change the world. Why not? What a time. Acts 2. The Spirit has arrived. Now, it might be asked what the difference is between the way these believers in Jerusalem experienced the Holy Spirit before Pentecost and the way the same Spirit was experienced after Pentecost. Preacher Derek Thomas gives us this illustration. Picture a huge dam, a huge dam for hydroelectric power under construction like the Aswan High Dam on the Nile, 375 feet high and 11,000 feet across. Egypt's President Nasser commissioned it. When it was finally completed in 1970, an elaborate ceremony was held when all 12 turbines, with their 10 billion kilowatt hour capacity, were unleashed with enough power to light every city in Egypt. The point is that during the lengthy period of construction, the Nile River wasn't completely stopped. Even as the reservoir was filling, parts of the river was allowed to flow past for the country folks downstream depended on it. They drank it. They washed in it. Watered. It watered their crops and turned their mill wheels. But on the day when the reservoir poured through the turbines, a power was unleashed that spread far beyond the few folks downriver and brought possibilities they had only dreamed of. He says Pentecost was like that. Before Pentecost, the river of God's Spirit blessed God's people and was their very life. But after Pentecost, the power of the Spirit spread out to light the whole world with incredible might and with incredible power. Pentecost changed everything. That's right. Power. God's power. Remember Jesus told them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's right. Power to live for Him. Power to say no to sin. Power to bear witness to Christ. Power to overcome the enemy. Power to please God and to honor Him with your life. No way we could do this without His power, but with Him and His divine power. Man, we can turn the world upside down, which they did. After the Spirit came and indwelt them. And look, every Christian has the same Spirit of God living inside of them. You can overcome. You can say no to sin. You can be that man or woman of God He calls you to be when you use His means. The illustration from a couple weeks ago helps us here again. Picture it like this. An army is sitting down before a rock fort. They intend to bash it in. We might ask them how. They point to the cannonball. There's no power in the cannonball. I mean, it's heavy. It's, it's, it's very heavy. And even if all the men in the army hurl that cannonball against the fort, it won't do any damage. They say, no, but look at the cannon. But there's no power in the cannon. A child can play on it. A bird can sit on it. I mean, it's a machine and nothing more. But look at the powder. But again, there's no power in the powder. You can spill it. You can get it all over yourself and, and it won't really matter. I mean, you just wash it off. But think about this. This powerless powder and powerless ball are put into a powerless cannon, and look, one spark of fire enters it, 
And then that powder is a flash of lightning and that ball is a thunderbolt that crashes into that rock fort and brings that fort down to the ground. And so it is with the church, with us, the people of God. We are powerless, but the Spirit in us is a fire that ignites us and gives us power for effective ministry, for overcoming, for enduring to the end, for honoring Christ with our fading lives. See, God's, God the Spirit, the powerful helper, he, he lives in us. Therefore, a powerless, sin-infested, mediocre, lukewarm, holding the good news in, wimpy, fireless Christian is a massive contradiction. God lives in you. God lives in you. Lord, help us to walk in Him and in His power today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for Your wonderful Word of truth. I pray, Lord, that uh, You would give us understanding into these amazing truths, Lord. Thank You. Thank You, Holy Spirit, for helping us, for for living in us, for sealing us. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that we would cast away sin right now and that we would fan you, your spirit, into flame more and more. Help us to be men and women of the word because we know your spirit works through the power of the word. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us. May we encourage each other in these things. We love you. We thank you for your spirit. Bless us as we go out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.